Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Chris Cottonor, executive producer of the Deep State Radio podcast. As we thankfully close 2020 and move to 2021, our goal is to bring you even more content on the issues of the day. We also want to have some fun and expand our offering to include some lifestyle content that loosely ties to our overall mission. The Secret Life of Cookies is a step in that direction. We're releasing this episode in the Deep State Radio feed, but our hope is to break it off as a separate podcast. If you would like to share some feedback on the episode, please email me at info at the dsrnetwork.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hi there, I'm Marissa Rothkoff, the host of The Secret Life of Cookies. Welcome to our first episode. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a professional food writer who has done everything from restaurant reviews for the New York Times to writing a column on kitchen gadgets for Newsweek. I also teach journalism at Montclair State College here in beautiful uptown, downtown New Jersey. Um, And I'm a big believer in kitchens. That's where families come together and that's where food comes from. And they're where some of the best conversations in America take place, over meals and while cooking. And I'm not the only one who thinks that, you know, since Andrew Jackson, I might add a really nasty piece of work, who was once president, the inner circle of the president has sometimes been called the kitchen cabinet. Kitchens are where the power is, and also the baked goods, which is why I spend so much time in them. Here at The Secret Life of Cookies, we want to bring you into these conversations with some smart friends who like to cook and who have something to say. And today's episode features a conversation I had with the hilarious comedian, Kathy Griffin, while I was helping her to solve a little problem she was having with making lemon bars. She tried to make a recipe for them I had posted and the result was, well, as she says, she's far too famous to have to know how to bake. But what she does do brilliantly is to tell stories. And the conversation we had while waiting for her lemon bars to come out of the oven was great. I hope you enjoy it. And then at the end of the episode, I will come back and I'll tell you about the recipe we were working on. Thanks again for joining us. And I'm just going to say that right now, I'm going to thank you all for being here and thank especially Kathy Griffin, who is over there getting, I guess, creamier. Okay. Um, so the theme of this episode is I'm too famous to know how to do things. That is exactly what it is. Um, this woman over here, the beautiful Kathy Griffin, is not only hilarious, but she's also a Guinness World Book record holder for many things. And I think I, that- I have, the, I have I've written, performed, and produced in more stand-up televised comedy specials than any comedian living or dead. I have two Emmys and a Grammy. And, uh, you know, very, very accomplished. Very, very accomplished human being. And she has a similar stand mixer to mine, which makes, brings us together today. The difference is, I'm a little more relaxed about cooking than I think Kathy is. And I was doing a countdown to cookies uh, on my Twitter feed and uh, who popped up a Kathy Griffin saying something to the effect of, oh my God, I just, I just used brown sugar instead of white sugar and lemon squares. And I said, 
I moved mm-hmm. two cups of salt instead of two cups of sugar. Well, that's the, that was even worse. Yeah. It's obvious that you are way too famous for all of this. So I appreciate your willingness. You've done cooking segments with people like Richard Simmons and Martha Stewart. How does this compare? What was it like cooking with him? I've done cooking segments with Hanson, honey. Um, Martha Stewart was a dream to me. I don't think she enjoyed me as much as I loved her. And Richard Simmons, who's missing, um, was not missing at the time. And he was adorable and as um, energetic and lovely as you would think. Okay, so should I stop this now? Yeah. Once it's done, then you can put it aside. It should be golden. We should, like, yes. Like Harry Styles' song, Golden. Is there anything you can't do? He is so cute. He's so adorable. And he lets me make fun of him, which is all I ask of an A-lister. All my daughter wants, my daughter's dream in life, like she's 18, she wants to go to college. She, I think, has some sorts of goals, but one of them is to be able to do Harry Styles' nails. Oh. I, um... (laughs) I sat next to him one time at an Eagles concert when he was dating Kendall Jenner. And he was a little tipsy. And by that, I mean very. And and so he kept getting up to leave. And he kept leaving his coat there. And he he was wearing a very specific coat at the time. He used to wear almost like a military sort of long coat. Yes. um, I stole it as a joke. And um, I put my hands in the pockets. And I was taking pictures with it. And I was like live tweeting it and stuff. And I was literally leaving the concert and his friend came up and he's like, uh, it's Griffin. And I said, I got this coat today at Saks Fifth Avenue. He's like, <laughs> he didn't. And so I had to get Harry Styles' coat back. I just about got away with it. But I got the picture, damn it. And Harry and I get along famously now. That is fantastic news. My daughter will be very pleased to hear that since it's her obsession. I, I have had some sort of run-in with almost every A-lister you can imagine. Some possibly, some not. But the Harry Styles one, I feel, was fun and whimsical. He seems like a fun and whimsical guy. I think he, his car broke down outside someone's home, and he went in and asked for help and then fed the girl's fish, who was, apparently she was a huge Harry Styles fan and wasn't there. Oh. So. Oh, he made a video, I hope. He made a video of him feeding her fish, whose name was Harry. Oh, Harry. Yeah. So he, I, you know, um, I have sort of the kind of feelings for him that maybe I, my daughter and I share a lot of feelings for him. And I think it's really unnatural and probably bad, but no, he has therapy. So it's good. It's fair game that you and I can at least hide it under the guise of anyone that Candace Owens goes for. We can, myself as a mature lady, I can then say anything positive about Harry, whether it's that I think he's adorbs or that your daughter loves him because now he's like, he's into the political sphere. So that's right. And he's extremely talented too. Have we talked about, I mean, it's not just about good looks. I appreciate him as an artist. I appreciate him as a guy that lets me make fun of him. And um, (laughs) I I put, I put a story about him in one of my specials and it was so great because it had this great element where he then came backstage and he had this crazy conversation with Tom Hanks. And I happened to be standing right there as, as I want to do. Yes. And kept saying to Tom Hanks, remember when you was in Captain Phillips? <laughs> and Tom's like, yes, I, I do. And he goes, who's the captain now? <laughs> and he went through all of Tom's way. He goes, remember when you was in Saving Private Ryan? <laughs> and Tom's like, yes. And then um, I'll never, I swear to God, Tom Hanks goes like this. You know, Harry, he called him Young Harry. He goes, you know, Young Harry, um, Kathy Griffin here is a comedian. 
Like he was trying to like go, Harry, walk away from the comedian, walk away. I go, you're in, honey. You are so in. And so I put it in one of my specials and I then ran into him at uh, like a music event where I was introducing, ironically, I believe the Backstreet Boys, precursor to One Direction, if you will. And, um, you know, I said, are you still speaking to me? And he just kept going like this. You're so beautiful. And I said, now you know how to talk to a comedian. He just kept going, no matter what I would say, no matter what punches I threw his way, he would just go, you're so beautiful. I, I just passed out a little. Your oven seems like the kind of oven a celebrity would have because it's yeah, better I, than mine. I said, whatever I have, my oven has to be faster than the Kardashians. <laughs> so whatever they have, I want it hotter, faster, and more expensive. Absolutely. Do you think they have, are they good cooks, the Kardashians? You know what, they all, they all cook. The mom, Chris, um, she cooks more than anybody, but they, they all cook. And you know that I used to live next door to Kim and Kanye, as in so close, we could each open our windows and like shake hands. And that was maybe the greatest two years of my life. Oh my gosh, you like, that was truly living in the middle of like a setup for you. Oh, but I mean, it was like, it was when she, they had their first two kids. It was when like he went to the nut bin. It was when, you know, like, uh, they were filming there sometimes and they would have like, they would have guests like, um, two chains and Mrs. Chains would come over for dinner. And, but let me just say this, they honestly, they were the greatest neighbors I ever had. I, I never heard of Pete. They were super polite. And my theory is, I think even though I've made fun of them for decades and called them dirty whores and every other name in the book, I think they realized number one, they're laughing all the way to the bank. And number two, they realized like, oh, the annoying red haired comedian isn't really like our problem. Like they had like actual issues going on with like real celebrities. And so we actually became friends. Kim would come over sometimes. I'd go over there sometimes. And um, it was a beautiful friendship. So there you go. <laughs> I'm pro-Kardashian. I know, I know. I'd love to hear that. And I think um, it may surprise a lot of people. Yeah, I think the Kardashians are a victimless crime. I mean, you know, they, uh, they certainly, <laughs> uh, and also let me say this, after I got canceled after my Trump photo scandal, they, uh, they invited me over Christmas Eve and- Trump Never heard of it, the Trump photo scandal. <laughs> what? And uh, and when nobody else would have me on Christmas Eve, I would go to the Kardashians on Christmas Eve and it was super fabulous and wonderful and it was like a little nod. And so I think that's something that Kim and I kind of connected on is like in the scandal world. Um, and I'm very proud of this. I connected her with uh, Governor Newsom. I'm making news for you today. So um, I talked to, you know, when she started her police reform journey. Yeah. And, um, you know, I asked Governor Newsom, do you want me to put you in touch with Kim? And I asked Kim and she was like, it's great. And so they had a meeting and I think, you know, I think it's great. Whatever she's doing for, for prison reform, I think it's great and good for her. And, you know, so, I mean, I, I said to her, I, and she and I actually made a deal because she came over one time and she's obsessed with Elizabeth Taylor. And I, of course, very much miss my dear departed friend, Joan Rivers. And so she came over to my house one time and I, I was showing her something that Joan gave me, some housewarming gift. And she goes, oh my God, I miss her so much. <laughs> I said, I said, did you know that Joan and Liz Taylor were besties? And I said, in fact, Liz Taylor is Melissa's godmother. No. Right? Oh my God. And so um, Kim is super obsessed with Elizabeth Taylor. And I think she's even bought some like memorabilia and stuff. And I said, did you know they had a deal? And Joan told me this, and I believe it. 
And the deal was when, when um, Joan would make fun of Liz, Elizabeth mercilessly, um, Elizabeth, you know, like she used to have this one joke where Liz Taylor got big and Joan would go, oh, Elizabeth Taylor, she's so fat. She goes up to the microwave and says, hurry! <laughs> and many others, right? And so um, they actually made a deal. And um, the deal was um, Elizabeth said, you can, you can make fun of me all you want. And um, uh, as long, and the deal was, Joan said, you know, Elizabeth said, if you will give me private comedy, whatever I want, whether it's I'm going to call you and you'll make me laugh or you'll come over, you can say anything you want about me and I'll never be mad. And Kim and I have that deal to this day. So I can call her a filthy, dirty whore anytime I want. And she, a couple of times she's called me and she said, you know, can you come over, make me laugh. And I'll just go over there and laugh or we'll talk on the phone. And I love that deal. And I was inspired by my beloved Joan Rivers. That is the best. First of all, here's to Joan Rivers and Elizabeth Taylor, but really Joan Rivers. And um, what a great deal. I mean, it's like dial a joke on steroids. It's right. brilliant. Joan Rivers also had that deal with Nancy Reagan. And when Joan told me that, obviously, you know, I would never, I would never tell anybody that. And I was so touched when Ron Jr., who I don't know, but I think he's super cool. When Ron Jr., when uh, Mrs. Reagan passed away, Ron Jr. told that story at her, at her funeral. He said oh. Joan Rivers would call my mother and make her laugh. And Joan said she would call the White House or the White House would call her. And, and Mrs. Reagan would never say anything. So Joan knew like, oh, the White House is calling. It wasn't Ronnie, right? And Joan would just pop off and talk smack about all the celebrities and do like a free concert. And she said she would just hear Mrs. Reagan like giggling. And they had like that little deal. And I, I, I thought that was kind of great, so. So, and so when she would do this, so it'd be like, she just like practiced her like, like celebrity shtick with her, on oh, yeah. her. In my situation, like if I would, if I was going to do it for Kim, I can't yeah. know who Kim would would want me to sort of go for. So I can just say, oh, I ran into this pain in the ass yesterday, and blah blah blah. And you know, so it's usually celebrity driven or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a deal. I actually wish I had with all A-listers because I'm always happy to make anybody laugh, and I love when they're okay when I make fun of them. And I think the best kind of people are okay with being made fun of. Clearly, it's kind of amazing how many of them don't get it. Like, it's really like, mm -hmm. most of them have actually come around about me or quite a few of them, but typically it's sort of the young ones. Like I always say there's nothing more insufferable than someone newly famous. Mm -hmm. So it's often like young stars or starlets that just haven't been famous very much and they get very offended. Often like years later, because I've been around like forever, right? <laughs> years later, they'll be like, oh, you're just kidding. You're like, you're just teasing people. I'm like, yes. That's right. You know, like when I make fun of Oprah, she seems to be fine. She's survived yeah. it. She's yeah. And also your name is um, followed by a comma and then comedian. Yeah, right. So it's sort of comes, that's what you do. If I said, you know, if I showed up at your house, I would bring baked goods, right? Because which that's- I, anyway, Which I might delicious, like I might love, but I'm still going to give you crap and act like I don't love them because that's what comedy is. I, I can just bite into one and go, this is good. Or I could say, I'm sorry, I didn't know I was a horse. This is a salt lake or whatever would be appropriate. <laughs> and, and I'd be okay with that. I hope so. Because even though I'm just a humble commoner, I, I understand why you are here on this world. To teach and, you about baking. <laughs> 
that is exactly right. You know, I I did something this. I'm sorry, go on. I said, which is get a husband who can cook. <laughs> who and knows his really knows his way around the kitchen, baby. You know, yeah. you know, in the beginning, it's all around the, and then you want to make sure they can get all the way around the kitchen. You know, yeah, yeah priorities. Um, I did something. Uh, wonderful and also something uh, wrenching and something that basically brought out every single one of my moods, which, and there are a lot of them this week, which was watch um, a hell of a story. You did? Thank you. I could not stop. It was compelling um, on every level. And I, I I think you refer to it as a docu-comedy. Yeah, because it was you know, it, it was part of it was um, my tour, which I did after the Trump photo scandal because I couldn't get any work in the States. I still can't. I'm still blacklisted. And I'm so glad you found the film on Amazon. I frankly, I wish Amazon would have like paid me a little something. <laughs> still sort of in that, you know, well, I'm toxic. But, um, but I'm very proud of the film. It won a whole bunch of awards at film festivals. And so about two thirds of it is basically a comedy concert. And then about a third of it is just super low res documentary footage that um, honestly, my husband and I just took the cell phones on the road, but we, we kind of captured a lot of that period. And you know, a lot of folks don't know that um, after my photo scandal, not only was I investigated by two agencies in the Department of Justice, the US Attorney's Office and the Secret Service, I was investigated formally. So it wasn't even like I got a phone call, which is also inappropriate, you know, when they call Bette Midler or they call right. John Laney. But I was, they opened a file, an investigation. I was under investigation. I was interrogated under oath and they were considering charging me with conspiracy to assassinate the president of the United States. And I'm actually still the first and only private citizen, much less comedian, to have been investigated by the feds for such a thing. And even the great Lenny Bruce was hassled by police. Even the great Jane Fonda, it was police. And by the way, I reached out to Jane. Yeah. And I wanted to know if I was going to make a statement like this. This is historic. Um, if, if it was true. So I, I sat down with the great First Amendment attorney, Ted Boutros. And he said, yes, I've researched it. And I can't see that this has happened to anyone uh, before or since. So it's an important thing for me to tell people that because, you know, a lot of people thought that that photo was inappropriate and that's fine. But you really don't want this happening to you or your kids, especially in the age of social media when people are posting all kinds of things. And I think that's kind of great. You know, it was not a violation of the First Amendment, which I kind of spend most of my life explaining. Although a great benefit is I got to do speeches all over the country about the First Amendment and what that means to comedy and frankly, just, you know, private citizens. And so um, I, I was actually um, put on the no fly list. And um, I then put on what's called the Five Eyes list. So when I traveled overseas, I was detained at every single airport. And I still to this day don't know what was on my passport. And um, I'm gonna try, I've had two FOIAs be like refused basically, but that's kind of one of my goals to find out what was on my passport. Because once again, I don't want that to happen to any of you guys. And really, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. I, I'm hope, hoping in the new administration that won't be, but for me, I'm kind of still paying the price of all this to sort of like some collateral damage. So I'm really glad that you saw the film, Kathy Griffin, A Hell of a Story. And I, I appreciate when anybody saw it because it was just, you know, it's hard to get eyeballs on it. Well, I, that's the part that's terrible because it really, it should, be, it should be shown in schools because it teaches the First Amendment. And what, um, I mean, it's more than the First Amendment, right? Because it talks about, there's, there's a serious abuse of power that's gone on 
by some people um, who it seems to me really should be tried for trying to assassinate the First Amendment, but that's my own personal feeling. Um, I, the beginning of the film was so harrowing. It, I, I, because I think because it was filmed with your cell phone, um, you showed yourself at your lowest, uh, what seemed to be the lowest depth. And the way it was shot and the fact that you let us in made it more harrowing than just having read about it, right? You know, obviously just be, I felt like I was there with you, I think is what I'm trying to say. And then to see you like a sprite bouncing onto the stage in a really cute dress, first of all, like super <laughs> cute dress. And just the right amount, like very ladylike heels, like little, just bouncing onto the, and just being, I'm here, I'm Kathy Griffin. And I was like, oh, the sun has risen. And it was, it was beautiful, it was wonderful. And to have you explain it and be there with us um, and talk us through the entire event and while still being you, you know what I mean? There were plenty of dick jokes. Uh, one of your specialties I hear? Yes, one of my specialties. And it was important to me to make the film as funny as possible because my motto is funny first. Now that I've become sort of an activist, political outsider, lightning rod, which I, I, I don't mind being a little edgy, but I didn't think I'd be like a lightning rod in people's yeah. eyes. But, um, you know, I'm really glad you like the documentary part because I had to really fight to put that in because I had a lot of men saying, no, 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 it's too dark. Just do the comedy special part. I said, well, if I do the comedy special part, then it's a comedy special. Yeah. But if you put the documentary parts in, I think that really illustrates a big part of the story. And, um, you know, people, I would say, responded to the documentary parts just as much as the stand-up, if not more. <laughs> but, um, um, the part that had me start to cry, not in a sobby way, but just like, you know, copious amounts of water streaming down my face, when you started talking about them trying to, the DOJ trying to get you to do a perp walk. Yeah. And why you refused to do it. Why, why was that? Well, you know, one of the really shocking parts, and, and, and during that period, especially during the investigation itself, I definitely would have times where I thought this can't be real. But, you know, keep in mind, I've known Donald Trump for about 25 years. I mean, I met him when he was a guest star on the show I used to be on called Suddenly Susan. Mm -hmm. I did, um, he hired me one time for an episode of The Apprentice to roast him. He paid me $50,000, flew me to that Fakakta golf course in Bedminster. And I was part of an episode of The Apprentice and I was like the MC and I roasted him. And I remember him saying, oh, don't be too tough on me about the hair and the whole thing. And it was just like a gig. And so I've known this buffoon off and on. And you know, in Hollywood, people just kind of thought like he's this bloviating kind of buffoon. But I don't think I really knew the depths of his uh, ideology or if he even had one at that time. Mm. But anyway, um, uh, when, when they wanted, what, what I heard from my attorney, uh, my First Amendment attorney, Alan Isaacman, who also, he represented uh, Larry Flint in the landmark case, Jerry Falwell versus Hustler Magazine. And um, he's retired now, but he was played by Edward Norton in The People versus Larry Flint. Right. And, um, so he would, you know, he called me and he said, you know, the DOJ is calling every single day. And they're saying, is she coming in? Is she coming in? And I said, coming in for what? I said, am I getting arrested? He said, no. And I said, well, am I being charged with, with conspiracy to assassinate the president? And he said, no. And I said, then I'm, why, do they, why are they allowed to call me to come in? And he said, they want the tape. And I said, what? Like, I'm like, what tape? The tape of the picture? And they're like, I want video. 
and they wanted me to go to the downtown LA precinct. And he said, they want a video of you in the jumpsuit with the plastic cuffs doing like the Whitey Bulger, you know, perp walk. And that was the, that was the biggest battle for me in that investigation process, because I, I wasn't, you know, when, when you, when you know your rights with an administration like this, and it was Jeff Sessions was the AG at the time. And now we have William Barr, of course. And, um, you know, it, it, they really kind of go out the window when you've got it coming from the top. It's my theory that it came directly from Trump. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think Jeff Sessions is real aware of my work. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it, it sounds so surreal to think these are the conversations in the White House. Although I did, I did have a conversation. I did a panel with, with uh, the former, uh, former Trump attorney, Ty Cobb. And I asked him if he was part of the conversations where they wanted me to do a perp walk. And he said, I wasn't part of those conversations, which tells me maybe they happen in the freaking Oval Office. So um, that was the biggest thing is, is my attorney, Alan, kept working with the US Attorney's Office to not have me have the, the, the Secret Service come to my home, do the Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, no knock raid, and then, I guess, throw me in a police car and kind of quasi book me um, and to do the perp walk. And so when it was clear, at least to my attorney, that they just wanted to do this for, I guess, PR purposes for them, that was what became the most bizarre and egregious thing. And when I was interrogated, I don't know, but I got the impression that the Secret Service agents were not down with that. I didn't I oh. did the impression that that was something that they were anxious to do. So I, I actually had very, um, very professional experiences with the two agencies that investigated me. I had a very good experience with the FBI. And to this day, they would call me when there was a threat. They would come to my home when there was an imminent threat. Um, there was actually an imminent threat the day I taped that, the concert portion of the film. Seriously? And, oh, no. and so there's only so much they can tell you about it, but um you know they they kind of let you know where this this person or these parties are are trying to cause you harm and they have this thing called a they read you a, a, a letter that's called like a duty to warn or something like that so i'm not anti-government at all i i'm just anti the trump administration i think there are a lot of my big no is you're not going to get the perp walk that was just that if i could do anything that's what i that was more important to me almost than anything because I mean, you you also imply that you don't want to you don't want people to feel that they have to do that. Like yeah. you were setting an example. I, I feel it's essential, and it's probably the most important part of the story. If um, and by the way, it takes a lot of money. So that's I'm not going to lie about that either. It took a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bills, um, to to try to I guess massage a situation that never should have presented itself in the first place. So I'm certainly acutely aware that not everyone is able to do that. And that's why if I can do anything to make sure that didn't happen to me, then there's a precedent. And so it, all kinds of egregious things happen to people every day. But yeah. if I am able to say, you can't do this. And if you do, I have the biggest mouth in Hollywood. So I will be talking about it. Um, I'm not sure. I think it was maybe a little bit of that, but mostly good lawyering. And yet that's one of those things that um, is, is, very shocking to just about anybody who hears any part of the story. It's tremendously shocking. And I wonder, like you went, a lot of people didn't help you. Yeah. A few good souls did help you in this sort of horrifying time. Yeah. 
but the one thought I, I kind of, I, I just kind of wondered on it and I don't know if it ever crossed your mind, but like, did you ever sort of wonder what your good friend Joan Rivers would have said to you in that time? Oh, I, I think that she, first of all, I think she would have been very protective. I don't think, I think she would have not, uh-oh. Uh-oh. I think she would have been very protective and I think she, you know, the thing is, hold on. You better attend to it, yeah. I'll look in my oven too. Okay, they're done. Yay. They look good. <gasps> oh, they look really good. Hopefully they're not too golden, but. It's okay. So do you think she would have been protective of you, Joan Rivers? I think Joan would have been protective for sure. And who knows, maybe she would have called the Donald, you know, behind my back and put in a good word. Yeah, I mean, he, they have a close relationship. I mean, it's all New York, right? Joan yeah. Rivers, Donald Trump. Right, right. Um, and maybe she could have talked some sense into him. But on the other hand, um, that's, a big, that's a big ask to talk no, some sense. This is so awesome. All right, my darling. I'll Thank let you very know. much. Enjoy them. Bye, Randy. Thank you for your help. Bye. Thank Take you, care. everybody. The lemon bars Kathy and I made are a beloved classic. The recipe we used comes from my pastry chef at the Institute of Culinary Education in New York, a fantastic woman named Kara Tannenbaum. Me, I'm an inherently lazy cook, and so this recipe is perfect for that. For little effort, there are great results. So instead of laboring over a hot stove, attempting to make like citrus curd all the time, you have to stir the eggs and sugar and worry if it's gonna curdle and end up smelling and looking like scrambled eggs here, the oven does all the hard work. You just pour the sugar egg citrus mixture into the par-baked crust, and then, you know, go off for a while, torture yourself on Twitter with talk of martial law, and then you come back um, to a delicious result. Feel free, you can substitute limes here or even bottled key lime juice. Though if you use key lime juice, be sure to add the zest of fresh limes to give it, you know, like zestiness. You can find the recipe on my website at marissarothkopf.com. And please follow me on Twitter at Marissa Rothkopf. Thanks again for listening.